As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. A lot going on this morning, but our lead story, JP Morgan in the pre-market up by 2.8%. Ken Leon, the Director of Equity Research at CFRA, joins us now for more. Ken, should I be focused on the beat, the raise, or the provisions for credit losses? I think focus on the economy and the strength of, of the results and performance. And what this means is, you know, banks are kind of peculiar. You build reserves mostly for loan losses uh, and also looking ahead to perhaps uh, weaker performance. Sometimes you have loan loss re- reversals. We had that a year ago. So what's likely now is if we have a soft landing, not a recession, second half of this year, the likelihood is these provisions begin to slow down and possibly the reserves may be too high in 2024 when you have an ability to be much better comparisons to 23. This was a good quarter. We thought this would be the trough of the investment banking cycle, and we are seeing green shoots, but the strength of the consumer and commercial loan activity is yeah. very promising, and size matters here, and that's been your discussion in the last half hour. Ken Leon, that's right where we wanted to go on size that matter. I'm going to give you two, buried in a PowerPoint, Ken Leon, and I know you know this and probably knew it already, 35% pre-tax margin on J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. 35% on the dollar. Folks, that's that's almost like, it's not in the textbooks is how I'd uh, put that. And what's so important to me, Ken, the return on equity within Marietta's system leaps from a 25 blend system up to 34% ROE. Have you ever seen a big profit machine like that in asset and wealth management? You know, it's amazing, Thomas. J.P. Morgan has done this, you know, with less fanfare than others, such as James Gorman and Morgan Stanley, that took it from 12 to 25% and probably 30. These are these are phenomenal numbers and it speaks to making the right strategic decision to expand an asset and wealth management. That's what Goldman Sachs, unfortunately, will have to talk about next week where they made the wrong turn and they're trying to play catch yeah. up in these amazing areas. It's, Lisa, that's exactly where I wanted to go. This is not about, I've never seen this before from J.P. Morgan and the, what the improvement was at Gorman uh, coming ages ago. This is about the ones that aren't 
doing it. And we're going to look to that next week in particular. Ken, I'm curious your take on the net interest income coming in so strong, upgrading that for the full year at a time when a lot of people are critical of the big banks for not passing along those extra profits to depositors more quickly, akin to what we're seeing over in the regionals. Yeah, that's right. And and, uh, we have a beautiful chart somewhere, but basically it's two points. You have one lever, which is rates, and rates might have peaked. But if you have increased loan activity, that will spur uh, net interest margins and maybe keep the earnings asset yields uh, at decent spreads, even though we have this disintermediation where depositors are looking for 5% or so. This is is really promising. Uh, For the larger banks, it's about 50, 55% of total net revenue. As to your point, Lisa, you get a little bit more downstream it's 65% or more. So that might help the the smaller banks. And and we're going to be watching that at CFRA. What are we seeing, Ken, with respect to depositors getting sick of earning nothing on what they are parking at these banks and moving and actually shifting into CDs, into income producing instruments? Is this causing any kind of pressure or have we seen a surprising stickiness of these deposits that will allow this type of net interest income to continue? Yeah, so that continues. That's far the biggest macro trend is this pivot uh, to getting higher yield. Uh, And additionally, uh, there is, of course, non-interest bearing deposits and deposits that are there because you're a small business doing business like with Bank of America and you have relationships. So, um, you know, I think that will continue. But if we reach next week where we've reached the Fed finishing its rate rise regime and pause, and then perhaps cut next year, um, this will be less of a factor. Ken, can we just finish on regulatory overhang? Bit of pushback, I think, then in the statement this morning from JP Morgan. I just wonder how much of an overhang that's going to be on the whole group of stocks in a banking sector. 100%. And that's where I would have started this conversation was Michael Barr's holistic capital approach that we studied rigorously that talks about the interplay of liquidity and capital risk and taking $2 for every $100 for risk-weighted assets. But, you know, capital will increase. Uh, If I'm an investor, I'm looking at total return, this might put some kind of ceiling on buybacks that none of the banks did. Uh, Those in the Dodd-Frank stress test were allowed to do, but they had dividend increase. Capital and return of capital is what Jamie Dimon's most worried about because a sophisticated investor may say, I may go elsewhere. Ken, thank you, sir. Ken Leon of CFRA. Megan Swiber joins us right now, Director of U.S. Rates Strategy at Bank of America. This is a brutal job. Does Moynihan call you up to get a briefing? <laughs> Pharaoh's big on this. Like, Brian's, like, wicked, wicked informed from his research staff. He harasses Ethan Harris at home on a weekend. Does he call you up to say, what's a terminal rate? You know, occasionally here and there. Um, but, you know, I would say that that's just been really the focus of markets m- more broadly, right, is ultimately what it's going to come down to is what is the Fed going to do at the next meeting? Where does neutral sit? And that's been very important for the bond market. But, of course, as we were just talking about, the equity market and, and Okay, but you did your Fabozzi, and there's got to be a mathematics that you go out to a place. We're back to a normal environment for fossils like me that we haven't seen in 16 years. What's the new, you know— in, in terms of terminal uncertainty, what's the new terminal rate you're working with? 
So, Tom, what it comes down to right now is the inflation picture. And part of the reason why we've been able to see rates rally so much this week is at the end of the day, we got a pretty promising CPI report. Um, and when you're looking at inflation being able to moderate, you know, when we when we dive into the details. What's that do to the terminal rate? What it what it does to the terminal rate is it reduces how much more we think the Fed will have to go. Um, if we listen to the more of the hawks on the committee, them needing them suggesting that there's still more room for the Fed to hike, what it comes down to is whether or not inflation is persistent or not. This core services ex housing component that Powell's really anchored the market on printed at zero percent month over month in the most recent reading. So it takes a little bit of the wind out of out of the sails of of the more hawkish camp here. One thing I can get hawks and doves to agree on right now is this soft summer patch. For inflation. Yes, exactly. Then exactly, there's this yeah. divide that starts to emerge later exactly. this year, as you know, yep. Megan, yep. about the potential to reaccelerate. Exactly. Where are you and the team on that? So we are of the view that in the long run, inflation will be able to settle back to 2%. And I think that that's right. There is really this divergence between are we going to settle now closer to 3% by the end of the year, or is that going to be closer to 2.5%? What I'll say right now is that we're a little bit more so in the um, stickier inflation near-term camp. When I look at what the market's pricing, though, you look at one-year inflation swaps sitting below 2.2% this morning. Uh, Even with our house view for a mild recession starting in the first half of next year, that's still about 40 basis points or so below where we're expecting. So I will say the market seems to be very overly optimistic around where inflation is going to settle even over the, the near term. And I think what it will come down to about this question of how quickly they're going to be able to see inflation moderate down to the target, it's going to be a matter of of how strong the U.S. economy will will continue to be. Um, and a lot of that economic resilience does skew the risks, I think, near term towards towards more persistent prints. Then do you think that it's too early to get bullish on longer term bonds at a time when perhaps the market is overpricing the idea of this soft landing that yields low inflation, robust growth, and everything can chug along. So I think, Lisa, what this presents for us right now um, is the is when we look at what the market's pricing across the curve, I think it's too early to get bullish on the front end of the curve. And as, as was just highlighted, right, we've seen really that very notable rally in the two-year rate. I think what makes more sense right now from the investor perspective is going long further out the curve, actually closer to the 10-year point. And that's because when we look at prior hiking cycles, right, when you look at how the market performs 12 months after the Fed delivers that final hike, you usually see tens rally on average about 100 basis points over that 12-month period. The ability for the front end to really come down is going to be a question more so about when does the Fed deliver deliver these cuts. You talk about basically a real deepening in the yield curve inversion, and this would be a re-steeping or re-inversion mm-hmm. uh, down to near record lows or at least post-1981. What does that mean in terms of some of the dynamics that we're talking about this morning with banks and whether that increases the risk of this shallow uh, recession becoming something a little bit more? Yeah. So deeper inversion will put more pressure on banks for sure. Um, But what I think the curve inversion is really telling us right now, it's not so much so reflecting recession concerns, as some of these recession probability models will tell us. What it's reflecting is expectations for the Fed to cut. And the Fed cutting alongside inflation that's able to moderate back down to its target makes sense. The Fed thinks about setting interest rates, 
through the real rate. So a 5% Fed funds rate is different when inflation's running at 4% than it is when inflation's running at 3%. So what we see the market pricing, and, and part of the real reason behind that yield curve inversion is this strong confidence in the market that the Fed's going to be able to get this back down to 2%. It's always been there. It's, amazing. it's you know, always, really, yes. It's beautifully spoken because, John, that's the absolute underlying belief structure that we have. It hasn't Fed, been shattered. Hasn't Fed, been shattered. You look at five-year, five-year break-evens, they've been pretty consistently priced at the Fed's target throughout this whole inflationary episode. That's the credibility test for Chairman Powell. In fact, he's basically said oh, that yeah. a few times. Oh, yeah. Can we finish on the global backdrop? We haven't discussed that much. Does it matter to your call that China's experiencing what some people might refer to as deflation, disinflation. The UK's got problems yep. with inflation, mm -hmm. Europe inflation. There's all this tension abroad in some major trading partners. How important is that? So I think it's definitely important, John. And when we think about the China story, right, what that will probably weigh more so in when we're thinking about what our inflation forecasts are to the, to the commodity story, right? And we've been able to see, and that's a major reason why year over year inflation has been able to fall so much, because commodity prices have fallen from where we were sitting this time last year. So the fact that we're seeing more of this weaker China story um, really does, I think, endorse the fact that the market's been able to price inflation down so much. When you're talking about how the market prices inflation, it's very, very highly correlated to the commodity story. So that in and of itself really does help uh, support lower inflation compensation priced across the curve. Megan, thank you. Big fan of your work together with Mark Cabana. Just brilliant. Oh, thank so you. Much. Thank Appreciate you very that. much. Thank, thank you. you. Megan Swiber there of Bank of America on race strategy and this inflation backdrop. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. trying to get perspective here, and we've heard a lot from bears vacillating, readjusting up. Anastasia Amoroso, chief investment strategist at iCapital, she doesn't have to uh, vamp it up at all. She nailed it. The market up. Let's go back in history. What did you see in October? What did you see that was enthusiasm for the market? Back in October, what we saw were valuations that were discounting a lot. I mean, if you looked across the equity markets, you had the S&P that was trading, I think, at the time in the 40th percentile over the last 15 years. If you look at investment grade and high yield bonds that were trading, you know, in the nines or 10th percentile of their respective ranges. So we were discounting a lot. And then positioning, I mean, Tom, could you get anybody to invest in any risk asset in October of last year? The answer is no. And then ultimately, the catalyst, you always need a catalyst. 
Israel is, what we saw was that by the middle of this year, there was likely to be this gap that was going to open up between where the level of Fed funds rate is and where inflation was going to be. And that gap was going to be positive, meaning Fed funds rate is above the rate of core inflation. And that's sort of what we are today. And I think that's what's been happening in the last six months. We've incrementally been getting closer and closer to that pivot point. But as you know, markets price that in, in advance. So what next? I guess the question, you know, you've rode this equity market, bull market, if you want to call it that year today. What are you doing now? I mean, you stick with it. You stick with it. And, you know, for now, I think we are on track for a soft landing. And I know, you know, the bearish camp would say, well, you look at positioning and it's getting very exuberant, you know, by some metrics. You look at, you know, whether it's hedge funds, whether it's CTAs, all of those investors have, you know, very quickly, very bullishly positioned. So, you know, that leaves you susceptible to a negative catalyst. But can you name a negative catalyst right now? You know, we've got if we've got inflation that is easing. We've got the Fed that is pausing and, you know, you know, Lisa, you talk about this all the time. If you've got the consumer that is strong and is not going anywhere, you know, then where's this equity market going to go? You know, so for now, I think when I square the valuations, which is supported around these levels, and when I square that with 2024 earnings, which, by the way, have been de-risked a lot, that gives you close to 4,800 on the S&P. And just to let you know, I could give you a n- numerous uh, catastrophic situations that could <laughs> potentially happen to curtail it, but that doesn't look likely. And that is the underscored uh, point here that we are seeing less headwinds to this rally continuing, which raises a question of leadership. How much do you shift away from what's done best so far to some of the small cap areas, the financials, after seeing the results that we've seen uh, just this morning? Yeah. Well, I think you stick with tech because tech, of course, is where the growth is and is going to continue to be. And I am a big fan of artificial intelligence. I think that's a huge trend that is adding to earnings of companies starting today. So you stick with tech. But at the same time, Lisa, um, I'm really coming around on financials. And, you know, if you look at the earnings results this morning, there's not much to be disappointed about. You know, yes, we know deposit betas are going to rise, but guess what? That's priced in. You know, yes, we know lending is going to be slower, but that's also baked into the cake. And what I'm actually encouraged about for financials are two things that I don't think are yet priced in. The first one is the possibility of a steeper yield curve. If we are, in fact, in a soft landing scenario, that at some point the Fed is going to pause and maybe even ease if inflation really comes down, and if the economy is still on track, then the back part of the curve should actually hold up. The only thing that someone could say if they were bearish, and Tom would grunt, and he would say, oh, come on, I I can't stand this, the concept of regulatory overhang, if perhaps these banks do too well, and suddenly the supervisors and Congress members decry that and try to put more constraints on them. Is that something you're watching? Yeah, it does need to be baked into the models for sure. But I would say it's a one-time risk. That's a one-time adjustment that would be that would have to be made. And guess what? It's also being talked about mm-hmm. in the research reports. But the other thing, again, that I don't think is yet baked in, you know, possibility of steeper yield curve, but also the possibility of deal activity picking up. I know that in some of the results that we're seeing today, you know, there's not much to write home about when it comes to IPO volumes or M&A, but I think conditions are starting to be in place for capital markets to really open up in the back half of the year. So that means more IPO volumes, more announced M&A deals, which, by the way, picked up this quarter, more of them getting done. And that's positive for banks. It's positive for alternative asset managers, for all the PE companies, private equity companies that will have the exit opportunities they haven't had. Let's get concise. Do you see a second leg of the bull, of a bull market to a fossil like me that's early 1976? And what's an SPX called? Don't give me this 90-day garbage that you do. Give me like a one-year, two-year, three-year view. 
I uh, want. I'm scared stiff. I've missed this. I need to participate. Do I have a luxury of a second leg of a bull market? I'll give you a six month view of oh, that. She's okay. really reaching out, John. Six months. <laughs> you know, it's somewhere between it's the great. 90 day and the one year. But this, the, the six month view, I think we do push higher towards 4,800 uh, on, on the S&P. And I'm a little bit more cautious going to 2024 because, you know, if we are at a point where the real rates do become restrictive, you know, at some point we may actually have a downturn in the economy. So I don't want to pre trade that. So that's why I'm sticking with it. But at some point in 2024, we might have to have a different conversation. It's been a great call so far this year. Congratulations, Anastasia Ramoroso of iCapital. What we need now is a reset on the American economy. She's expert with this, with the acuity out of London School of Economics. Pooja Shriram joins us now, U.S. economist at Barclays. You got to write a weekend note, my deepest sympathies. What's going to be the theme of the weekend note across the algebra of real GDP? consumer investment government in this oddity of trade. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good point. So, you know, we've um, we've been seeing very strong consumption spending uh, since the beginning of this year. Like, you know, Lisa pointed out there's there are signs that perhaps uh, the momentum is slowing, but we're still, you know, fairly high. Um, so just to give you a sense of the numbers, um, you know, we're tracking uh, GDP in the second quarter at still 1.5%, close mm-hmm. to 1.5%. And that's that's a resilient economy. Um, I think where we are seeing some signs of weakness is is perhaps in business fixed investment. Um, and that's, you know, supplemented by the data we're getting in terms of manufacturing PMIs. Um, and that that's really where the weakness seems to be building up. Um, and then we're expecting, you know, some drag from from trade but overall if i were um, to look at gdp you know we're still on a fairly strong footing it's been off off message today for us as we focus on the banks and it really hasn't come up in the powerpoints that that i've seen but what does barclays with all of your heritage of studying this in london say about commercial real estate i understand it's not going to move the needle on real gdp but fold a commercial real estate analysis into your american economics yeah, fair. So we, we did write about this a while back, um, Tom, and we, of course, focused on office um, CRE. And I think that's where um, at the time there was a lot of um, discussion about stresses. Um, but, you know, some of the the takeaways from the note was, uh, look, office CRE is just about one third of all of the CRE um, in the markets. And I think the second is it really depends on, um, you know, how, uh, the stresses play out. Typically, you'll find that uh, loan maturities are staggered, uh, lease rollovers are staggered, um, and a lot of exposure for CREs is with the smaller banks. Um, so for it to become a macro scenario, we would really need a solid meltdown. And that's something we don't see happening at the moment. Pooja, we're talking about the economic backdrop in a week that has been pivotal. It right. has given us both the disinflation narrative that has gotten uh, given a steroidal shot, and everyone seems to be buying it. It's everything is rallying kind of week. We also have earnings from a number of companies, not just the banks, that highlight the strength of the consumer. Mm-hmm. Is this an economy that has any chance of a recession this year? Well, at the look of it, yes, it seems hard to see how the slowdown materializes. 
Um, but our baseline, Lisa, is that um, it's likely that momentum will slow towards the end of this year. And a lot of that is contingent on the Fed's hawkish rhetoric and further rate tightening. Uh, and, you know, it's it's hard for us sitting here to now think of how the economy slows. Uh, but we think higher rates will slowly start to bite uh, in towards the third quarter of, of this year. We're seeing some nascent signs of slowing, perhaps, um, in the economy. Um, and we think that with further rate tightening, we should get to a point where we see a mild and shallow recession towards the end of the year. We're seeing that a lot of the banks are increasing their loans to consumers right now. Mm -hmm. They see the money signs because they're getting good interest rates on these loans, even as delinquency rates pick up and they're putting aside more cash for loan losses. How do you watch this, the re-leveraging of the American consumer ahead of what a lot of people are expecting to be a slowdown? Yeah, that's that's a that's a good point. So we are seeing some signs of stresses in terms of delinquencies, like you pointed out, um, and we think um, you know eventually uh, the U.S. consumer is likely to slow. But you know, just to sort of tie all of this back, it really depends on what happens to the labor markets. Um, you know, we we're seeing strong consumption spending. That's primarily a, a reinforcing cycle of strong labor demand feeding into income, feeding into consumption. So in order for this to slow, what we really need is for labor market conditions to ease. Um, yeah, that, I think that's that's the key point that we we want to see. And I think that's where we're looking at in terms of where consumption spending is headed. What I see in the earnings, we'll talk to Shanali Basic about this in a bit, folks, and then Gina Martin-Adams on this equity surge is a bit, and I want to fold this into economics because everybody's telling me hour after hour after hour in the zeitgeist now that the stock market's delinked from the economy, which I'm not sure I buy. What I see here in the PowerPoint from JP Morgan is the iconic bank is the rich people are basically throwing money at a financial system, profiting from it, and the haves in America are really doing well. What's a polarity? I think you're really qualified to do this with your work out of India and out of the United Kingdom. You're distant from this, which is great. What's the polarity you perceive in the two Americas or the three Americas that are out there? Yeah, I think uh, that's a good point. Um I think that the the people in the upper income group are clearly very well positioned in this economy, uh, very strong balance sheets, um, you know, very strong uh, savings, and I think um, it's it's the perhaps the income percentiles which are in the lower end of the spectrum, which is where the stresses are likely to be felt, um, you know. <clears throat> Of course, we look at aggregate data, Tom, and what that tells us is across the board, people seem to be comfortable to not save um, even in this economy. Uh, I think and that they're benefiting from this yeah. this huge pile of savings and they're taking comfort yeah. from it. And so across the spectrum, it seems like, you know, we are yet to see any cautious sentiment mm -hmm. set in. That's the expense of summer camps mm -hmm. in plural, which is where you see the saving dynamic on a macro basis slip away. Roll over. Roll over. I'm hoping July rolls over into August where we can save ourselves. Pooja Saram, thank you so much. That would bark Barclays with a really nice update. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.